we love to collect stuff. When I was a kid, I collected at various times, sometimes overlapping, I collected baseball cards, collected a lot of baseball cards. Now, my mom doesn't throw things away to this day. There are still baseball cards there. I collected baseball cards when they were actually worth money, and now they're not worth anything. Like, it would be, they're literally not worth the, the cardboard paper that they're printed on. I also collected Transformers. My mom still has my old Transformers. Owen plays with them. Like, Optimus Prime is missing an arm now because my rambunctious nephew, Hunter, broke his arm off. But Owen still plays with the Transformers I had. I, I collected Micro Machines. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember those. I loved it in Home Alone where uh, the two robbers slip on the Micro Machines. I totally had Micro Machines and tried to make my brother slip, not the robbers. Uh, I collected stamps. My granddad collected stamps when he was... Um, when he was younger, and so he gave me his stamp collection, and I collected them for a while in the late 80s. I collected posters at one point. Uh, I remember we're doing this Images Everything series. I remember having a poster of Andre Agassi doing a commercial for Canon. Do you guys remember that? The Images Everything campaign. I had that poster. I also had the pink uh, high tops, but I was not allowed to grow the mullet that Andre Agassi had in the late uh, 80s. I collected cassettes. I, I, I would go to, um, I guess you called them record stores at that point, but they all sold cassettes, and I remember just buying singles, so it was like one song on one side, and then another song on the other side, and then when CDs started coming out and becoming popular, it wrecked me, because I just had all these little plastic cassettes that were no longer worth anything anymore. My mom actually still has the cassette player stereo that I had in the early 90s, um, now, my collections weren't as odd as some of the ones I looked up this week. I, I just sort of Googled odd collections. There's a lady named Jackie Miley who has 7,106 teddy bears, uh, and she has the largest collection of unique teddy bears in the earth. Uh, on the earth. Gregory uh, Fleischer of Russia has 1,320 unique toothbrushes. Uh, I saw a picture of him. I know. Were they used or not? What's the... What's the deal on that? A guy named Kevin Cook has 51,000 unique dice. Uh, I thought that, that's, that seems like a large amount of uh, different dice. A guy named Vic Klinko, which is the greatest name of all time, has 6,000 unique bottles of hot sauce, including a bottle of the, great, like the hottest hot sauce on planet Earth. Uh, Nick Vermoulin, who is Dutch, has 6,290 airsick bags, uh, barf bags from over 200 countries. I love that one. Uh, Karsten Tews from Germany has 1,563 unique cell phones. I saw a picture of his collection. He's even got like the Zach Morris. You remember that Zach Morris cell phone from the late 80s, the huge one? Uh, Graham Barker has the largest, this is gross, the largest collection of belly button lint. He's been collecting belly button lint since 1984. Only his own belly button lint, but he has 22.1 grams of belly button lint. Um, I did read about a group that has 30,000 toenail clippings that, <laughs> that they're using for medical research. I don't want to know what they're researching, but they do. And then uh, if it makes you feel gross and dirty, you can reach out to Carol Vaughn of Great Britain, who has 5,000 bars of soap, uh, and you'll be all good. Man, we love to collect stuff. I don't know what you collect. I don't know what your thing is. I venture to say that most of us collect something. Um, and for some of us, it's just a hobby. And for some of us, it becomes something more than just a hobby. It begins to take on this life where it begins to own us. And there's two things I want us to see today. Scott, if you go to the first slide for me, 
in the message uh, slides. A good thing is a good thing if it remains a good thing. A good thing in our hearts is a good thing if it just remains that. Oh, that's a thing, and it's good, and it's not bad, and it's just good. Now, here becomes the trick for our hearts, and we'll see this today in Romans. This is probably the biggest idea of what we're going to talk about as we talk through this idea of images, everything. If you'll go to the next one. A good thing becomes a bad thing if it becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing if it becomes an ultimate thing. When that thing becomes the thing that, that gives us meaning in life, then it's ceased to be something good. And our hearts do this. Our hearts tend to bend this way very naturally. And so the biblical word for that, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, is an idol. Or the Bible a lot of times actually calls it an image. Uh, and they become things we collect or the things we rearrange our lives for because we love, uh, desire, treasure, or enjoy them more than God. When I was in, in college, I was just talking with Amy about when I was in college, I went to the University of Georgia, and tailgating was a big deal uh, when I was in college in the late 90s. I went back for the first time in like 2013, and it had become something else, akin to a religious environment, this tailgating. Like, people had these trailers with cutouts into their trailers so they could put their large screen TVs, and then they would just have it. It was incredible what a religion tailgating had become. It shocked me. It had become this ultimate thing for people of what your trailer had in it and the quality of your... Uh, coolers and grills and televisions said something about who you were. Tailgating had become this ultimate thing. And we do that. That's what we do. Let me read to you a couple of, uh, let's read Romans uh, chapter, chapter 1. Let's read verses 18 to, uh, through 23. Here we go. Now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people or of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now that's kind of, Paul kind of starts with the end here, all right? He's starting with God is pouring out his wrath on people because they're unrighteous and ungodly. Now he's going to begin to walk it back and tell us why. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So people begin to turn, people inherently, and this isn't set in any one time or place, this is kind of universal. Paul is talking about universal from the Garden of Eden to the end of time. This is what people do. We tend to forget God. We can see him in creation, but we forget him. And so the verse starts talking about the wrath of God. Now, uh, this idea of wrath is super controversial in our day and age. We don't like thinking about God's wrath. And if you want to have a, a coffee discussion about God's wrath at some point, I would be glad to. Because I'm going to give you a working definition of wrath really quickly, and it's not going to be culturally popular. God's wrath, which does exist, is his just and loving response to sin. 
God's wrath is his just, meaning he is justified in feeling wrath toward the brokenness in our lives and on our planet, his just and loving. And this is the controversial part. God's wrath is actually his love in action on some level in response to sin. Why would we say that? I'm not going to dive real deep into it. Again, I would love to talk. You can email me. I would love to talk about this. Text, text. would love to talk about it. But if I see my kids playing in the middle of Bunker Hill Street while cars are coming down the street and I don't yell at them and do whatever I have to do to get them out of the street, then I do not love them. And so I may yell, I may push, I may do whatever has to happen to get them out of the road. And to do anything less than that is less than loving. And so God, in his, his wrath, becomes this execution of his justice that has to happen in love because he would not be loving if he let us collectively destroy ourselves as a species. That would not be loving. And so his wrath is his just and loving response to sin. It's his response, it says in verse 18, to our ungodliness, our unrighteousness, and our suppression of the truth. That's what we do. We suppress the truth. There's sometimes where um, Natalie will ask me to do something and I'll pretend like I didn't hear it because I don't want to do it. I'll be honest, like I'm not the greatest husband all the time. Not even the greatest husband most of the time. Carson, that never happens to you, does it? Why is she looking at you? I don't even know. I was, I was confessing my sin, and she's looking at you as if it's your struggle. <laughs> You're catching Lana's wrath. That's what I do, and that's what we do with God. We suppress the truth. We, we, it's almost like sometimes we cover our ears. God, I don't want to hear that. That's not, con- that's not convenient. So we live ungodly, unrighteously, left to ourselves, and we're all incriminated. Like, you are, in fact, incriminated in that as well. Romans 3.23 says, all have uh, sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So you can look at Lana, too, and say, you do that, too. There you go. And... Uh, Yes, yes, we all do these things. Why do we do them? I don't know why we do them. I don't know why we rebel. Verse 19 says God left obvious clues in the universe to who he is. We talk about this with our kids. They, they, they kind of like science. And we'll talk about, boys, did you know if the earth were three feet closer to the sun, we would all burn up? And if the earth were three feet further from the sun, we would all freeze to death? Like, that's incredible. That's incredible. And we can look at creation both scientifically and see God, and we can look at creation like as if it were this masterpiece painting and see God at work. We can see God both ways. We can look at our consciences and see God. There's something in us universally that seems to know there's a right and wrong. This seems to be true across all places and all times. There are just some things that universally we all know are wrong, whether we live in a jungle in the Amazon or we live in America or we live in an, uh, a Middle Eastern country. We know that abusing children universally is wrong. There's something in us that just tells us that is wrong. We know that genocide is wrong. We know that murdering people is wrong. Now, we may suppress it, but we know deep down there are universal truths that we know are wrong. And God left these clues externally and internally, verse 19 says, in the universe. It says, God made it plain 
to us that he exists. And verse 20 then goes on and says that his power and his divinity are seen in creation's complexity and in its vastness and in its de- uh, detail and it's in, in our consciences. Let me read you part of a devotion that... Uh, this is a book called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. A couple of you own this. I love this. He says on May 12th, he says, The radical truth of the existence of God isn't just preached to us on Sunday. It's preached every day through the beauty of the sunset, the power of the storm, the inexhaustible wings of the hummingbird, the hugeness of the mountain, the whisper of the breeze, the smell of the sizzling steak, the beauty of the petal of a rose, and so on. The power and clarity of creation's message leaves no human being with an excuse. You have to work to deny God's existence because it's so readily visible everywhere you look. God did this because he's a God of grace. I swear, when I get to heaven, if heaven smells like anything other than a baby's temple, I'm going to be highly disappointed. A baby's temple is what heaven ought to smell. It's the greatest smell in the universe to me. Like, there's nothing better than the smell of a baby's uh, little scalp. And God, those are little clues that God has written into the universe to remind us that he is God and he's loving and he's powerful. But the problem becomes, verse 21, we see it and we don't turn, we don't honor, we don't thank God. And in that moment, the Bible says we become futile, we become foolish, and we become dark-hearted. Our hearts, it says, grow darker when we see God and we push away. Whether it's as a Christian or not, our hearts become a little darker when we do that. And so in verse 22 and 23, it says, they started worshiping created stuff. They began to worship uh, birds and reptiles and animals, and they began to worship people over the creator. These are idols. When good things become ultimate things, they become bad things. Or another way to say it is when the created, when we begin to worship the created over the creator, we have a huge problem as human beings who are made to worship the creator. So I think I have a slide of this. If you'll go to the next one for me, Scott. Here's an idol. This is a definition of an idol. An idol is anything that we love, desire, treasure, or enjoy more than we love, desire, treasure, or enjoy God. Whatever we love, desire, treasure, and enjoy ultimately becomes an idol. Now, I don't know about you. I'll be honest. I have a lot of those. (laughs) Anybody else? John Calvin, 500 years ago, said that our hearts are factories of idols. I'm ready for the Patriots tonight. I'm going to sit and enjoy that game. There's going to be something in me that's going to treasure watching the Patriots win uh, these games this year. Like, there is, I enjoy going to Fenway Park and enjoy, uh, and enjoy a Fenway Frank on the fiercest level. Like, I enjoy, there are moments where I enjoy my kids more than I enjoy God. To be totally frank, there, there's so many times in my life where I enjoy, treasure, love, and desire my own way and my own comfort more than I desire, enjoy, treasure, love, God. I just want to do it my way. And I don't want to be bothered at moments by a God of the universe who wants me to put him first. And that's an idol. I am my own greatest idol. I am. And I would venture to say there's a good chance that you are too. Now, God does two things to our idols. 
first thing he might do, sometimes he takes away our idols. Do you guys remember the college football player Colt McCoy? I think he's back in the NFL, maybe with the Red, is he with the Redskins? I think he's back in the NFL. Colt McCoy played uh, years ago for the University of Texas. He was really good. I think he even won the Heisman Trophy in college. And uh, in the national championship game in the first quarter, Colt McCoy got tackled and it just wrecked his knee, if I remember correctly. And, uh, and Colt McCoy was a Christian. He was uh, a follower of Jesus. But he had to sit out the rest of that game. Texas went on to lose that game and lose the national championship. And afterwards, Colt McCoy was interviewed about that game. And he said, you know what? Football had become my deepest love and my greatest dream. And when football and my dreams and, my, uh, and everything was taken away, and this is what he said, this is a quote. He said, I learned that Jesus was enough for me. Sitting there on the sideline, knowing that all this kid wanted to do as a kid from Texas, all his life was to play for Texas and lead Texas to the national championship. And here they were, they were favored in this game, and he gets hurt, he goes out, and he has to sit on the sideline and watch his dreams uh, die and football be taken away. It's his last game. He said, in that moment and in the aftermath of it, I learned that Jesus is enough for me. And sometimes... God, in his love and wrath, will take our idols away. And it is painful. It is painful when our idols get taken away. Uh, I'll watch my kids throw tantrums sometimes when they get their device time taken away from them. And that's exactly how I act. Do Sky and Michaela throw a tantrum ever when you have to take something away from them, Miss Rochelle? You know, <laughs> every day. Amen. That's right. Man, that... My heart does that too. When God begins to rip my idols away, I can panic and scream and have a tantrum, right? Because they mean so much. The second thing that God will do, however, in wrath and love, is he lets us keep our idols. And this is the weird one, because we would think that our idols would go, and that would be how God would teach us. However, sometimes God lets us keep our idols. Tom Brady famously did an interview, Mark and I have talked about this interview several times, after he won their third Super Bowl championship in 2005, uh, Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes, and you know, he's 27 at the time, and, uh, and the interviewer is asking him what it felt like winning the Super Bowl. And he basically says, you know, I've won. I've been to the top. I'm 27. I've won three Super Bowls. I'm already arguably the greatest uh, quarterback of all time, some people are saying. And he says this. He says, I wondered, is that it? There's got to be more than this. It was like God gave him, his, God gave him the thing he most wanted. He got it. And he wondered, is it it? It reminds me of my friend, a guy named Matt Rogers. Worked, he never felt smart, so he worked all his life to get his Ph.D., and he got his Ph.D., he got the diploma. Uh, he was, he's a pastor, he's a church planner. He got this diploma, it finally validated him, so what he's wanted for 30 years. He got it, he said they went home, and he said he set it down by the coffee table and went and hung out with his family. He looked at it and thought, 30 years I've wanted this, it's going to validate me and prove I'm smart. He looked at it. It didn't provide what he thought he would. God gave him the thing he idolized. And in love, he just said, you know what? It didn't fulfill. There's got to be something more than this piece of paper and the work that went into it. He set it aside. Whether it's success, comfort, sexuality, family, stuff, religion, a hobby or passion, ourselves, God's wrath falls on our idols and the images, the things that we set up in place of him. Now, here's the gospel. I'm going to give you a couple things about the gospel because 
I don't know, if, if I were sitting where you are, I'm thinking about my idols and the things I love. And if you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you the gospel. I want to give you the good news. First slide, if you go to the next one. Here's the gospel. God's wrath, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, you've been born again, Christ is in your life, God's wrath toward our idols has already been satisfied in Christ. So if you're sitting here and you feel any condemnation, understand that condemnation is not from Jesus. God has already taken out 100% of his wrath on your idols at the cross. God took out his wrath for our idolatry on his son, Jesus. So when God looks at Carson today, he's not like, Carson, I see how you love that new gene. You are in deep trouble, my friend. He doesn't do that. He's not like, Carson, if you don't stop loving that Jeep, I'm picking on Carson. I don't know how much he loves his Jeep. He loves it a lot, according to Lana's eyes. Um, (laughs) God's not looking at Carson thinking, unless you love that Jeep less, you are in trouble. If that Jeep, and it hasn't, but went from being a good thing to an ultimate thing, and Carson has turned that Jeep into an idol, Jesus has already died for that wrong place love. So we don't have to sit here and feel condemned. Christ took God's condemnation on the cross. Now, if you'll go to the second slide for me. So God's wrath is fully satisfied in the crucifixion of the sinless Jesus. So here's the next thing. We are no longer idolaters. We're no longer idolaters. So many times as a follower of Jesus, I've defined myself as something I'm not anymore. I'm not a liar. I'm not an idolater. I'm not this. I'm not that. But we call ourselves that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are first a child of God. And that is not who you are anymore. Jesus died to pay for all the times we loved, desired, treasured, and enjoyed the created over the creator. So we are not idolaters anymore. We exchanged all those images for Jesus. And Jesus reverses those verses those verses that we read at the end where it says they exchanged uh, the glory of the invisible God for birds and reptiles and animals and the images of man. When you became a follower of Christ, you exchanged all of those images for Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. God changes our identity and now we begin to live out that identity. To become a Christian means to say Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You can have all the idols and images in the world and they would not be enough for Jesus. But when we've given our life to Jesus, Jesus is enough. And so uh, it becomes this sort of the last moment in a Disney princess movie where the fairy godmother steps in and flicks the little wand and then everything broken becomes good, like good. Everything gets fixed and what's rags becomes this beautiful gown. That's what the gospel does. And we are no longer idolaters. We don't have to outrun our idols because we are now part of the family of God so we can live out our identity. The third thing that happens as part of this, uh, this story, we get closer to God's original intent every time we cast down an idol. Remember last week we said that we were originally made in the image of God. Every time we look and we say, this is an idol in my life, we get closer to what God intended for us to be. So if my idol is 
Netflix right now. I've been binge watching that show, The Good Place. Man, I just caught up. I love that show. It's fantastic. Like, uh, it was like six or eight of my seminary classes rolled up into three seasons of television. I wish somebody would let me watch that instead of going to all these classes for three years. Every time I cast down an idol and say, you've become ultimate, you are good, but you've become ultimate, I'm getting closer to what God originally intended for me to be. And the same can be said for you. We've, we're becoming wiser and better and freer versions of ourselves, closer to the original intent. Yes, there are battles that we fight over idols in our hearts, but we fight them out of victory because Jesus has won the war. And every time we say, boy, that's now in my rearview mirror, I don't struggle with that. By God's grace, that's not me anymore. We're becoming closer to what we used to be. My dad, six months before he died, quit drinking. My dad drank at least 14 beers every single day. It was very much an idol in his life. And he quit doing that. And as my dad got closer to his death, he got closer and closer toward what God originally intended for him to be. And that's what happens when we cast down our idols, and that is the gospel. And so now, if you'll go to the last sort of gospel slide. So here's what happens when we begin to do that. What was an idol is now a good gift from God. What was a good thing, but became an ultimate thing, when we put it back in its place, now just goes back to being another good thing that compels us to love and worship God. Whether it's our kids or our cell phones or our work schedule or what everyone thinks of us or what we think of ourselves or our comfort, all of those are fine things. They're nice things. But when they become the thing that we're orienting our life around, we're in a dangerous place. So when we cast down the idol, those can become good things again. My phone is not a bad thing. It does a lot of things that took me 20 devices 20 years ago to do. It's not a bad thing. But if I'm missing life because I'm on it, that's a bad thing, right? When I put it in its place, it stops being ultimate, becomes good. Then it becomes something I can worship God. I can ride down the, through the tunnels in Boston or in another city, ride through New York, through Manhattan, and thank God for my phone. Don't hold it. You will get a ticket. I had that happen. Like, and so I can say, God, thank you for this phone. It saved me from getting lost in this crazy city. It becomes a good thing that frees us to worship. If I worship food, that sizzling steak, boy, I can, when, it, when it said a sizzling steak, I can think of that smell and that taste. Where if it becomes an ultimate thing, it goes back to being a good thing. My kids, when I hug them, if they become ultimate things, they can go back to being good things. So I can say, God, thank you for Noah and Owen. Thank you for a steak. Thank you for a phone. Thank you for friends. Thank you for these things. They go from being ultimate things back to being good things that cause me and you to love and desire and treasure and enjoy Jesus as we enjoy them. So Christ followers are the most free people on planet earth. Don't walk out of here today thinking, boy, I got to figure out every little idol in my life. Figure out what they are, but don't feel condemned by them because Jesus has borne the weight of that condemnation. And now we're free to find them, throw, put them in their place, throw them into the place where they belong and allow them to cause us to worship God. God's wrath is appeased towards Christians. Our identity has been changed. 
We're totally free. We can easily identify and cast down our idols and the fake images that rob us of our identity. I think most of us as Christians live a very condemned life that Jesus died to free us from. I can crumble under the weight sometimes of the things I love more than Jesus. But it's not God who's pushing me down. It's the condemning voice of the enemy. God would say, I've lifted that weight off of you at the cross. You are totally free. Return to being what you were intended to be. And I think when we do that, this week, I, you know, I, I did what I told you, asked you to do at the end of the message last week. I, I stopped being on my phone when I was walking down the street and in places, in restaurants. I looked more people in the eye this week than I've looked in the last three months. And I saw a lot of people under the weight of a heavy load of life and people who can't look you in the eye and people who are crumbling under the weight of their idolatry and the images and the things that they've held up and the expectations that they have for their lives. And in Christ, we're free to just look around and be like, that's not, that's not God's ultimate end game. And that made for a good week. People who follow Jesus are the most free people in the city of Boston. The most free people. Let me pray for us.